Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dorianne Coleman, Professor of Law at Duke Law School. We will discuss her article, Sex and Sport, which was published in Law and Contemporary Problems. So welcome to the podcast, Dorianne. Nice to be here, Brian. Yeah. So I have to tell you that I am not particularly a sports person and hadn't spent much time thinking about sports at all before reading your article and, and honestly didn't really know much of anything about the controversies that that you're talking about. So it was really interesting for me as a first-time reader and kind of first-time sort of engager with a lot of these ideas to kind of get get your, I think, really interesting and unique and and, and kind of um, special perspective on this kind of firsthand perspective on on this issue. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about the difference between sex and gender and why that different difference presents a problem specifically in the context of competitive sports. That's an excellent question and really the central question that I address in my article. Um, so sex in the way that I use it, and, and it's important for everyone to sort of get on, on, on the same page with the vocabulary because people use words differently, of course. Um, the way I use sex in, in the piece is, um, is to mean um, biolog- what we normally think of as biological sex, including in all of its, um, in all of its components, so genetic sex or chromosomal sex, and then gonadal sex, endocrine sex, phenotypic sex, and social sex. Um, all of those aspects of sex come together to form um, to form the social sex piece aside. The other the other components come together to form what we typically consider biological sex. And then gender, although it's been used um, you know really differently over the years um, by um, in in the legal academy and law, but also in other disciplines. Um, in this context, really is used um, to mean gender identity and someone so someone's internal sense of gender, and um, and and the debate in sport is about um, is really about the women's category in elite sport, um, and it can be about girls and women's sport more generally. But but in the article, I focus on the women's category in elite sport. Um, and the reason that um, that the focus of the of the discussion, the debate, um, the controversy is there is because uh, the women's division in elite sport was essentially created or carved out or set aside, depending on the language you prefer, uh, to provide um, a an opportunity for biological females, again used used in the sex sense, um, for biological females to have an equal chance at the goods that flow from sport, um, from the institution that is sport, and then um, for sport to be able to use the women's category as um, as a, a, a way to empower girls and women worldwide. The Olympic movement, um, it, you know, sometimes it's viewed cynically and sometimes that cynicism is, is warranted. But in general, sport has done, you know, a really nice job um, over, over the decades. I, I, broadening um, the reach of, of the institution and the institutional goods to uh, previously um, 
un, unrepresented and then underrepresented groups, and that includes includes females around the world. And so, um, and so we carve out this space for females so that they can have an equal opportunity at the goods that flow from sport. And the reason it's necessary is because, um, on average, females are not competitive with males in 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 almost every sport. And so, if we were to leave sport open um, or co-ed, uh, we would at the elite level only see um, male males, um, biological males, males by sex, male bodies, however you want to phrase it again, um, all those all those terms are freighted, but but essentially you would only see males on the podium um, and in finals. Um, and, and and so to the extent that we think that um, that it um, that it is valuable um, as a societal proposition to um, to be able to use sport as an empowerment tool for girls or to provide equal opportunity for girls and women in elite sport, um, then um, then it's important to be able to uh, uh, provide or set the eligibility standard for um, women's elite sport, girls and women's elite sport based in the sex-linked biology that matters for purposes of sport and that 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 is the basis for the performance gap between males and females, um, and so uh, the movement to empower, um, you know, the sort of parallel related movement to empower uh, uh, intersex and trans people, including through sport, also uh, collides with the, the 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 goals of of women's elite sport or, or, or elite sport for females in that um, in that it proposes to. Um, it, it essentially proposes or demands a new eligibility rule that takes out um, the biological sex basis for the category. So it would have um, eligibility for the women's category being defined, you know, depending on who you talk to, either on the basis of gender identity alone or on the basis of um, gender identity plus some um, accommodation, um, for example, um, as the Olympic movement has done in, in, in the last um, 10 years or so, uh, the requirement that, um, that trans women um, and, um, and athletes with um, differences of sex development reduce their testosterone levels um, to within the women's range um, in order to compete in the women's category, and so um, and so, there's that collision um, between between essentially the the, the two um, the two approaches to defining eligibility for the women's category. Mm-hmm. So, in your paper, you you break down a lot of these distinctions in a pretty granular way, and and it seems like it seems to me like one big one is the difference between people with you know with respect to gender identity, as opposed to the questions posed by people who have some sort of like intersex um, quality where it's, it's difficult to place them on the sort of sex continuum in on one side or, or the other. And I was wondering if you, and you talked about testosterone just a minute ago, which focused, you know, played an important role in your discussion of sort of why this distinction matters in thinking about um, categorizing people for the purpose of competitive sport. So, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about a, the role of testosterone and also like how we should think about gender identity as opposed to sort of people who don't fit nicely and neatly on the right. kind of typical sex continuum. Yeah. Another excellent um, question. Uh, the paper the paper really focuses on um, on intersex on, on the challenge that intersex athletes pose for 
um, for the eligibility rules um, and, the, and the women's category and sort of the conception of what the women's what, what the women's category is about in elite sport. Um, but of course, in the current, in the most immediate moment, a lot of a, a lot of the issues um, uh, relate to trans athletes as well. Um, I wanted to correct or or just um, or just uh, elaborate a bit on your premise, and that was um, the premise of your question, um, this, your starting point, um, where you said that um, that in contrast to transgender women, for example, uh, intersex athletes might be um, might not be so easily pegged. And, um, and, and the reason I want to, um, I want to focus there for a minute to begin with is that, um, that the, um, Olympic movement, and that includes the IOC, but the focus in this period, the International Olympic Committee, but the focus in this period is on the International, um, Association of Athletics Federations, the IAAF, um, and, on, and it's, um, eligibility rule for, um, intersex women or um, athletes with differences of sex development, which is the medical term for um, the political term that is intersex. Uh, so the, there are many, many different intersex conditions, um, over 30, depends on who you talk to, how many are actually um, are actually listed uh, in, in, in their references. But, um, but there are only a few that are of relevance to sport. And um, and only a few, as a result, that are um, affected by um, the regulation. And so, the regulation specifically lists um, uh, individual intersex conditions that are regulated by the rule. And those intersex conditions all involve um, biological males. In other words, um, only athletes with um, forty six X Y differences of sex development. In other words biological males with differences of sex development um, who have testes, testosterone levels in the male range, and are androgen sensitive. In other words, that testosterone is bioavailable at male levels. Only those athletes are of concern to sport and are regulated by sport. So Mm -hmm. athletes... Dorian, could you talk a little bit more about the kind of the medical terminology used there? Because I think that that's a little confusing and I don't necessarily think people will understand why testosterone is so important and what it means for it to be bioavailable. Okay, that's great. So so I said um, intersex is a political term, sort of an un- umbrella term for a set of conditions um, that are, and I use the word conditions in the medical sense. A lot of my work is is in law and medicine. And so I tend just for your your own um, for your own information and, and your listeners' information, I tend to speak sort of more medically than maybe most people using medical terminology or assuming we're in a medical context than, than a lot of people do. Um, and so, and so um, intersex is, an, is a political term that is an umbrella term for a set of conditions that are, are mostly actually medical conditions that are called differences of sex development or DSDs. And, um, and there are many of them. And um, some of them involve um, uh, differences of sex development that males have, and some of them involve differences of sex development that females have, and then um, one is in between, which is um, it, which is a single a single um, uh, intersex condition called ovotesticular disorder, which really is the two right in between ovotesticular. Um, but most of them involve either males or females with some difference of development of sex organs. 
And, um, and the reason, um, that, um, that DSDs or intersex conditions, these particular intersex conditions are relevant to women's sport is because they involve males with male testosterone levels who, um, were identified at birth for lots of different reasons as females. In other words, um, it is decided that the word female rather than the word male will be placed on the, the child's birth certificate and the child will be raised um, in the in the, the, that sex socially as they grow up. And they may or may not identify as female at, you know, as they go through life. Um, gender identity is a different, is a different thing than social sex of sex of rearing, for example. Right. Um, and so the reason that um, the focus is on testosterone, and I guess this gets back to your original, your, your second main point. Um, the, the reason the focus is on testosterone is because testosterone builds um, the secondary sex characteristics that matter for sport and that account for the performance gap between males and females. And so um, when I said earlier that if we made sport open or we made sport co-ed, we would no longer see female bodies on the podium, it's because um, male bodies have attributes um, that are developed during um, puberty and sustained past puberty by the different levels of uh, testosterone in the male body. There are, of course, many different um, attributes people have that contribute to an individual performance, either on a given day or, or a given individual's performance over time. But the performance gap between males and females that accounts for um, or that, ra- that, that, is, that supports or underlies um, the or is the rationale for, I should say, the women's category or the carve out in elite sport for women is are these um, are these sex linked traits. Mm. Mm. And and how do we how do we know? I mean, and is it always a problem? Or only sometimes. I mean, it seems that in the article you point to some conditions that might place people who identify as women in the male category, but it seems like for other reasons, they wouldn't be likely to be competitive in elite sports. But for some kinds of conditions, um, it would be an immense advantage to someone with that condition with respect to other people who identify as women or identify as, as females. What's the difference there and where does it come from and, and what makes somebody especially competitive um, who identifies as a woman but is biologically male? So the conditions, and I'm going to go back to the point that I made earlier, the conditions that are of concern to sport are only those and they're, na- they're listed in the rule, right? And they have names. And, and I discussed two, the two main conditions in my article. Um, but, um, but these conditions um, involve, um, because the, the, the athletes have um, testosterone levels in the male range and that testosterone is bioavailable, um, they're not androgen insensitive, in other words. Um, uh, their bodies develop for all intents and purposes the same way a male body develops. And so they have the same advantages that, that males have who do not have differences of sex development. The differences of sex development in their case, because of their particular conditions, are, are um, affect aspects of their development that are unrelated to sports performance. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. No, I understand. Okay. Um, and, and, and it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like the fundamental problem you're addressing in your paper is the sense that it would be unfair 
to expect people who are biologically women to compete in the same events with people who are biologically male. I mean, could you, could you talk a little bit about sort of why that would be fundamentally unfair? Cause you give some pretty interesting statistics in, in the paper that I thought kind of underscored the point. Well, so, um, so it's important always to go back to first principles or home base, right? Why do we have a women's category in elite sport? We have a women's category in elite sport um, to provide a space um, where females can perform and, I mean, can, can, can participate, compete, um, win, um, that, um, that excludes intentionally, right? That excludes biological males in the biological males in the, in the gonadal and endocrine sense that matters for the secondary sex characteristics that account for the performance gap. That's why we have female sport. And so to have a, a, an eligibility standard that is consistent with the, 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 the reason for the existence of the category makes intuitive and logical and practical sense, right? Um, and so to include someone um, or to make an exception for someone who has those same traits that um, that the category was designed to exclude makes makes no internal sense, um, but it also is the premise for the argument that it's unfair to include those people, right? And so if the idea is that um, that we, we could choose, for example, and, and, and this is an argument people make, and, and, and it's, it's, it's not entirely, it is entirely legitimate. Uh, we could choose to, to not, not to have women's sport instead to have, for example, um, you know, age, age classifications or weight classifications or height classifications, or you, we could cut, we could cut the pie differently. Um, and, 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 th- and that's a policy debate that people want to have, and, and, and it's fine to have it. But to the extent that it makes sense to have a women's category, it is literally only because, um, because we need it because of these performance advantages that are derived from, um, from testosterone. And so, and so the argument about the argument that it's unfair, um, is an argument that, 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 that is, a, that, that is, that goes to whether the category is protected for its intended purposes or whether the inclusion of someone um, who, who has these traits that, that were designed, that this category was designed to exclude is category defeating, right? So the argument that was made, mm-hmm. for example, in the Semenya case um, by the IAAF is that to modify the eligibility standard to include athletes with T levels in the male range, T being testosterone, T levels in the male range, um, given the purposes of the category, is itself category defeating, right? Mm-hmm. It, it would be to redefine the category in a in, in a fundamental way, which is a policy a policy move we could make, but we haven't made, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so. Um, the ground rules are set um, based on the goals for the category, which are to provide this space for females to compete against each other and not against males. And um, and so we either decide we want to protect that category or we that 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 policy choice, and thus and thus the category using sex linked traits, or we don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the so my- is, I'm sorry. Sorry, I was going to say, I mean, it's my understanding that this question is on people's mind precisely because of this Carter Semenya case that that you mentioned. Yeah, sorry? 
Her name is Castor Semenya. Castor, sorry, sorry, sorry. Castor no Semenya. Yeah. Um, so could, could you talk a little bit about sort of what was at stake in that case? You know, why it illustrates the problem that or the question that you're talking about so, so directly. And, um, and, you know, whether this is like a com, like, is this a common thing or is it kind of the, like a, an exception that, that isn't going to come up very often? So the differences of sex development that are of most concern to sport, um, there are mainly two of them, but there's a list of about eight in the rule. Um, they are rare in the pop in the general population. They they exist in all populate all the conditions, including the two conditions of mo- of most concern to sport, are found in all populations around the world, um, and they are very rare. Intersex conditions in general, all thirty of them are very rare. Um, but but these two particular conditions. Um, and then the group of, of eight or so, um, the larger group of eight or so, are even more um, rare uh, than 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 the most common of the of the intersex conditions, uh, the differences of sex development. However, because the athletes who have the conditions of concern to sport are so powerful because of their testosterone, where they are identified at birth as female rather than as male. And in many countries, they would be identified as male. But where they are identified as female, um, they have this just extraordinarily powerful advantage, which is their testes and their T levels in the male range. And um, and so they're overrepresented, um, dramatically overrepresented in the in the elite female athlete population, if that mm. makes sense. Right. So this isn't like a unique outlier kind of extremely unusual situation. This is actually a question that comes up in a non-trivial number of cases. Right. So, um, so a colleague, um, published a study in December that, um, that proposes that in the last 25 years plus, um, a significant percentage of, um, medals, um, at the world and Olympic championships, um, in the affected events, and, and that's something we haven't talked about, but there's a, a, a list of events that are at issue too. Um, but mm-hmm. in the affected events um, were won by um, women with these particular differences of sex development, mm-hmm. um, which well, there's apparently an overrepresentation, according to the study, an overrepresentation of 1,700 fold wow. to, their, to, the, to the population representation. Wow. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that concept of represented events, because, you know, it's my understanding that sort of the biologically male bodies have significant advantages in perhaps some sporting events, but, but not in others. And, and people like Nancy Leong have suggested that, well, maybe we should focus women's sports on sports where those advantages wouldn't make make a difference. So I want me to kind of identify sort of when and why it is important and why that answer to your mind is like not adequate or that it's still important to have differentiated sports. The sports that we um that, that that exist today and that um that are um are Represented at the um, you know at the world's level um, and and then the NC two A level as well, 
of course, tend to be um, sports that privilege male physiological, physical and physiological advantages. They were developed um, in, in a period where only men or primarily men competed. Um, and, and then, you know, women's events, sports and events were added that were the same um, or pretty much the same, right? With some, with some adjustments, like, like women's gymnastics is different and women's skating is scored differently. But in the main, you know, there was men's track and when women's track was added, women's track was added to parallel men's track. And eventually we had all the same distances in event. We had all the same distances. It doesn't happen exactly that way in every sport, but in general, um, the, the, the point that, um, that women's sport, um, is, is that women are disadvantaged in relation to men in sport is because, um, sport privileges, male advantages is, is an accurate, is an accurate, um, statement or reflection or, or critique. Um, we could, and I've heard Nancy on this, um, she's good. Um, we could imagine a different world where, um, we made up sports or we invented sports that privileged either female characteristics, physiological and physical characteristics, or that, um, that, that neutralized um, them that didn't involve a handicap, like in golf, you know, it's women's tees, men's tees or whatever, but that, that, um, that, that didn't involve um, either men's or women's privileges, I guess privileges is the wrong word, but advantages. Uh, But those aren't the ones that were, that are being featured by sport and sport as a business in this period. Right. And so we could imagine a different and maybe better world, but that world doesn't exist today. And so, you know, what I'm, what I'm focused on is, is the reality on the ground and, and the reality on the ground is that um, if we want to see females on the podium, if we want to see females in finals, um, we need an eligibility rule that recognizes um, the very real performance gap between males and females that is physiologically and biologically based, um, and mm-hmm. that, that is tied to, um, to, um, sex linked traits. And that's super controversial in this period, right? As we're, as we're sort of growing our sense, um, of, of what sex is, um, how, how it's not always binary, um, how it doesn't, it's not inclusive of people whose gender identity doesn't conform to their biology. So it's controversial to, to make a claim about, the validity of a space that is based in our sex linked biology um, mm-hmm. in this period. But the reality is that, um, that in sport, it, it, it is inevitable that we have that conversation. And even if it ends up that we abandon sport as we know it today, or abandon the women's category, um, that's a policy choice. That's that, that, that might or might not be based in, in, you know, uh, uh, the necessary understanding of the biology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so as I understand your your argument, it's kind of fundamentally based an idea of what it means for competition in sport to be to be fair, and the idea that for it to be fair for biologically women competing, that it's not fair for, to expect them to compete against people who are biologically male because it will basically be impossible for them or broadly speaking impossible for them to 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 win 
basically, um, and that they deserve as long, a chance. As long as we're talking groups, as long as we're talking groups, right? The yeah, group yeah, of, yeah, right. Of course, group of, of course. Of course, of, they're all individual female athletes who can beat individual male athletes. Of course, of course. But like broadly speaking, that the competition would be unfair to them. It seems to me that for a lot of people, they seem to care more about the questions of sort of people being able to have, or maybe care more about people being able to express the gender and sex identity, the, the gender identity and to claim the sex identity that they, that, that they experience and that maybe they prioritize that over the, the fairness question. And, and I wonder how you would respond to people with sort of like a different normative perspective as to what we should care more about. Like they might recognize the value of what you're saying, but say that this other, this other concern is more salient, more important to me. And I think we should focus on that instead. I, I would never tell someone what, um, what is more salient um, to them. Well, let me think about how to say this. Um, that is an entirely legitimate policy position. And so that's why I ended my last, um, my last comment with that's a policy discussion that is a legitimate policy discussion, right? We mm-hmm. could decide, and lots of people think this way, we could decide that um, for lots of reasons that the carve out for women's sport doesn't make sense. A lot of people still think that way. You know, they thought that way in, 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 in 1960 and 1970, and they still feel that way today. Um, a lot of people don't think we should be spending any time and money on sport at all. Then lots of people, I mean, reducing it, the, the, the pool, right? Then there are a lot of people who don't think we should spend money and time on women's sport. And, um, and especially as um, if, if spending time and money on women's sport means um, excluding um people whose biology um, doesn't conform with their identity, um, they're, I, all I can say is that's an entirely legitimate policy perspective to have. Um, as we have the discussion about that and whether to, um, to amend the eligibility standard for girls and women's sport to include those whose gender identity is different from their biology, I only encourage people, and 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 this is all I do. I encourage people um, to understand why we have the carve out in the first place, the good that women's girls and women's sport does, right? And I'm talking about elite sport now. The good that girls and women's elite sport does now, the power it um, it holds, the empowerment power it holds in societies around the world, and to make a an intelligent assessment. Um, not just an emotional one, but an, an emotional one too, because there are inevitably emotions involved, especially on, on the side of gender identity, right? Um, but to make an intelligent assessment of the costs and benefits of, of, of a rule change. Mm. Um, because the, the benefits of women's sport are pretty outstanding and, and it's, mm-hmm. and, and, and they go well beyond, you know, any individual benefit to the single woman who might be the champion on any given day. Um, mm. I think there's a general understanding, you know, for example, Title IX is one of the most popular pieces of federal legislation ever enacted in the United States. I think there's a generally held 
Um, not necessarily by everyone, of course, but there's a generally held view that um, that girls and women's sport has been an incredibly powerful, empowering, positive institution in American society and in societies worldwide. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 so my 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 goal or one of my goals is simply to get people um, to include an understanding of those benefits as they engage in the larger policy discussion about the existence of women's sport and then, um, and then any changes to the eligibility standard for women's sport, because the the result would look very different if, Mm. if, if, if the eligibility standard were changed to gender identity um, without any requirement for um, for hormone changes. Right. Because so we hormone changes are at a minimum. Uh, uh, so we've been talking about elite sport, I think pretty much exclusively. D- does that suggest that you think maybe we should think about the question differently when it comes to kind of less elite, I kind of like that kind of put like more amateur sport or like, you know, children's sporting leagues and so on, or do we still need to be cognizant of this, this issue? Um, I mean, should, should we think about it differently in different contexts? I guess is what I'm asking. I I think we absolutely should think about it differently in different contexts, but we should always be cognizant of, 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 of the biology. And so, um, and so for example, um, you know, as I explain, as, as I describe in my article, you know, I think I think that we should always look at what what the institutional mission is of any you know of any organization or or company or government or policy. We should look at what the goal is, the mission is of that of that of that. Um, also called an institution for now, like the institution that is elite sport. We should look at the goals of that institution decide whether they're legitimate or not. And if they're legitimate, let's talk about like how to, how to develop a rule that, that, um, that gets us to those goals without being over or under-inclusive. That's sort of standard anti-discrimination analysis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the goals of the, uh, of, of the Olympic Games or the goals of the IAAF when it's, um, when it's running its Diamond League series or its world championships are very different um, from the goals of, of education-based sport in the United States, for example, right? Or at least they're very different from the goals of, of elementary and junior high and high school um, uh, uh, sport, education-based sport. In the main, um, the goals of education-based sport, and I'll say in the United States because we're, we're pretty different in terms of how we run sports development in this country, but, um, but the goals of, of, of sports programs in public elementary schools and public junior high schools and public high schools are largely about, are largely derived from the educational goals of those institutions, right? They're about, um, you know, teaching, you know, the, the, the educational lessons would include health, health lessons, but they're also about teamwork. They're also about, um, you know, sort of positive self-image development. They're, they're about resilience. You know, there are lots of educational goals associated with gym class and with after-school sports, with, you know, intramural sports, co-ed sport, you know, all kinds of sports, right? At the education, at the educational level, um, that are, that are just, just, like not even in the same pot as the goals. It's like almost like a different thing that you're doing um, in in the education based setting. Um, and so, 
And so having different rules in those contexts makes perfect sense because the goals of the institution are different. Um, the hard space um, and the space that, that the space that's that, that where there is likely to be the most um, the most contention, but also, I mean, even though the, the Semenya case is obviously very contentious, um, but I think long term, the hardest space is really um, the, the, the point in high school sport where, um, where there's an overlap and an intersection between the educational and, and participation goals of, of that institutional mission and the competitive elite goals of the, the mission. And so, you know, the, the teams that go to the state meet or that win the state meet or the individual who wins the state meet and goes on to regionals or nationals where the regular season ends and the postseason begins. They're still, those are still programs that are funded by the state for educational purposes, but they start to take on that kind of NC2A, D1, big-time sports um you know, they, they, they might even be showcases for college teams. Right. And so that's the space that's hard because it's, 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 it's that it's, it's both a collision between the sort of participation and educational goals. And the, this is not about participation anymore. This is about who wins, right. Mm -hmm. Um, who's the best. And, and that's not what we're, that's not necessarily what we're looking for in education-based sport for the most Mm -hmm. part. And so that 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 is the really difficult um, place um, place for law and policy or for, for policy in this period, and then law um, development, because because in the United States, of course, um, a lot of elite sport takes place in the education based setting, and and so and so figuring out you know how to articulate the goals of the institution as to that to to that transition space. Um, and then how we might develop eligibility standards that include everybody, including the trans kids and the intersex kids and, and, the, and, and the cis kids, um, include everybody, but still make the competition piece fair um, is, is really difficult work. Right. Well, so in closing, Dorian, I understand that your current project builds on your work in your sex and sport paper. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you're going uh, in the future with, with these ideas and observations. Thanks for asking, Brian. I'd love to talk about it. In the next paper, I move from sport as an institution to law as an institution. So from sex and sport to sex and law. I continue the focus on biological sex and the paper structure parallels the one I used in sex and sport, which I think, as I mentioned earlier, is derived from standard anti-discrimination analysis. So I examine the law's institutional mission and societal role and then the ways in which sex has been used in and by the law to contribute to its fulfillment. I start with the longer historical view and earlier periods when the law's focus on sex was unrelated to equality norms. And then I move to the modern period and to the two current challenges to sex and law, both of which are based in equality norms. So the first challenge is from advocates who would prefer that gender identity replace sex as the basis for any remaining classifications in quotes on the basis of sex. And the second challenge is from different advocates who reject the notion that there's any proper role for the law in setting standards for society having to do with sex or gender. Um, Ultimately, my overarching goal, though, is to explore the extent to which sex should remain a subject of the law's attention. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it turns out. Uh, It sounds excellent. I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dorian. Thank you for having me, Brian. 
Miss Catherine Hepburn. We know the music. We sing the words. Sometimes I wonder, though, do we really listen? Do we feel the sense of the words? My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. Of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died. Land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. You know the other verses. Their meaning is precious to all of us. The Armed Forces Bicentennial Caravan tells of America's stirring national music and the history of our nation's fight for freedom. I suggest that you pay it a visit. You already do it with men and women. Think about it. There's no real reason for there to be a man in a woman category in acting. It's track, it's not, come on. There's no reason. It's not track and field. You, you don't have to separate them. You know, Robert De Niro's never said, I better slow this acting down so Meryl Streep could catch up. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at all, man. If you want black people every year at the Oscars, just have black categories like best black friend. <laughs>